Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. For free resources and free messages, visit our website, friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or call us for more information at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. I have a friend who's made millions of dollars and millions of dollars on hand, and my friend worries about how to use the money for good. And so serving, serving God is not, not in my friend's thoughts. You know, but, but I've always wondered why my friend put so much effort into trying to do good with the money. Even though my friend is not serving God, it's as though my friend knows that an account is going to have to be given for how the money was used. And so riches bring the stress of having to give an account. And this was explained in Matthew 25, 13 through 19. You want to turn to it, Matthew 25, 13 through 19, where the Lord said, watch. He gives this word, watch. Be very careful. Watch, therefore, why? For ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own service and servants and to delivered unto them his goods. And to one he gave five talents, another two, another one, another man, every man according to his several ability. Straightway he took his journey. Then he, had, then he that received the five talents went, traded the same, made other five talents. Likewise, he that received two, he gained others two. He that received one, he went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. It says, after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And we won't go through the rest of it. But he reckoneth with them. In other words, you say, okay, it's time now. You've got to give an account. You have to, it's time to smell the coffee. And now you have to tell, what did you do with what I gave you? You know, no one owns anything. We don't, no one owns anything. It all belongs to God. And it says in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. So that doesn't really leave anything remaining. You know, it's not God's. Everything belongs to God. I mean, God has simply given us what he owns in order for us to manage it for him. We're just custodians. That's what we are, of God's possessions. You know, that's the first picture that we saw in the Bible of Adam. It says in Genesis 2.8, And the Lord God planted a garden. That was God who planted the garden. Eastward in Eden. And there he put man, put the man whom he had formed. And then in Genesis 2.15, it says, And the Lord God took the man, put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. That was God's garden. That was God's garden. And the Lord planted that garden, and then he put Adam in it. Can you imagine if Adam suddenly looked at the garden and says, I've decided this garden's mine. This is my garden. He Maybe Adam says, I own this garden, so I decide what's going to go on in my garden. And then so Adam, you know, he goes and makes these signs. says, Adam's garden, no trespassing. He goes, put some up. You know? <laughs> Imagine when God starts to walk in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam comes out with a shotgun and says, you're trespassing on my garden. <laughs> I'll thank you to get off my land. <laughs> now, if that would have happened, we'd all want to step in and say, no, no, Adam, you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. This is not your garden. This never was your garden. This is God's garden, and you've been put there by God, and you've been given a job in the garden, you're supposed to dress and keep it, and you're going to have to give an account to God of what you did, you know, and how you, well you did, dressing and keeping the garden, didn't, didn't do such a good job. Anyway, 
I mean, the bank teller is responsible for the money he handles, but he doesn't own the money. It's a real problem when the bank teller decides, this is my money, all this money is mine. You know, we are bank tellers. All right, so all this talk about bank tellers saying the money's mine and Adam saying the garden's mine, it's delusional, we can see that. But this is what people do. When Haman, you remember we studied that in Esther 5, 10 through 11, it says, Haman, when he came home, he sent, he called his wife and his Zeresh and his friends, and Haman told them of the glory of his riches. See, that's, those were his riches. So a person who thinks that his own head, you know, by his own brains, and his own hand has gotten him riches, that's what the Bible describes as a heart condition. See, that's a heart condition. That's a problem. That's a real problem. It's a heart condition. It's described by the Bible as a heart that is lifted up and forgets God. So that's description that's given in Deuteronomy chapter 8 in verses 14 through 18 where the Lord warned the Jewish people. He said, Then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God which brought thee. And he goes through a little bit of description here to refresh their memory. He says, look, you know, I brought you forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, he said, I led you, wherein were fiery serpents, scorpions, and drought, where there was no water. So not only water, no drought, there wasn't any water. And who brought forth water out of the rock of flint, you know, as if to say, how did you think that up? How did you make that happen? They didn't. Who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, that he might make prove thee to do thee good in the latter end. And thou say in thine heart, my power and uh, the might of my hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. So deep down inside of every person, there is this small voice of conscience. And it's telling him, telling each person, your lifetime is short, and everything that you have is a loan from God, and one day you're going to have to give a report on how you used it, what was loaned to you. And, and the person may suppress, try to suppress that small voice of conscience inside him, but still there, still, still coming up. So riches, what they should do is drive a person to God to ask God to teach him how to use the riches that are entrusted to him and how to be kept from the stresses and the temptations that the riches bring. You know, Agar, he was a man, he knew what he was praying for. It was a very smart prayer. In Proverbs 37 and 9, he says, he says to God, Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. See, he has death on his mind. And remove far from me vanity and lies. He calls them vanity and lies. And he wants to be removed far from vanity of lies. And he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Just enough, please, if you don't mind. Thank you very much, Lord. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. So he's talking about something that he's got in his mind because he's thinking about dying and having to give an account before God. And he's talking about lies, vanity and lies. And that's what riches promise that they can't deliver. Riches tell lies. Riches promise what they can't deliver. What do people want? 
Everybody wants stability for the future and certainty for the future and security for the future and strength for the future. And riches lie when they promise to give that all those things because they can't deliver. It's a lie. And that's why the Bible calls riches deceitful. In Mark 4, 18 through 19, it says, These are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and lust of other things entering in, choke the word and becometh unfruitful. That's the worst thing about riches is that they tell the lie to the rich person, you don't really need God. You have riches, you don't really need God. See the, those words, the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things entering and choke the word, they're so graphic, you know, you can picture this person named the word or the word of God or the Bible. So the person is standing there and he's saying, you need God. And another person you can picture is named riches and the lust of other things. And he comes along and he puts his hands around the person's throat and he chokes them. So he stops saying those things. You need God. And then the rich person, he ends up saying, well, who's the Lord? See, that was Pharaoh. So the owner of one of our vendors gave to our company 18 tickets to the Padres game last night. You know, one of those suites where they have the food buffet, you know. And so Cheryl and I went, and so then I gave 16 tickets away to some of our staff. People came to me, they thanked me. I said, thank you very much. I appreciate being thanked for something that didn't cost me anything. <laughs> it was free. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I really don't follow baseball. I'm not a baseball fan. That was obvious when halfway through the game last night, I asked somebody, what color was the uniform of the San Diego Padres, you know? <laughs> so I was wondering what I was doing there in the first place anyways. Well, I found out that I was sent by God to the ball game last night because the man who invited us, the owner and his manager, were both Jewish. So I talked to them about becoming friends of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I asked them, I said, have you ever had a committed Christian who believes the Bible talk to you seriously, not about religion, but about the Lord Jesus Christ? And they both looked at each other and they said, Susie. <laughs> they have a Susie in their office. And Susie tells them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I found out in talking to them, probably the same thing as Susie found out, they don't want to be friends with God. And so, and it wasn't because they were Jewish. It wasn't because they were Jewish. It was because they were rich. And they listened to and they believed the lie that when the riches told them, you don't need God. You don't need God. You're rich. You don't need God. And when I realized that they'd listened and they believed the lie that you don't need God, I told them that, they needed to not read the Bible like it was the Merchant of Venice or some book, you know, but they needed to be driven to the Bible. They needed to be driven to find God. And when you said, I said, I explained to him, I was driven to find God. I said, when you're driven and then you go to the Bible, then you'll find God. I said, that's the way it works. Why? Because God is like a mirror in his response to man. If a person casually thinks, well, there must be some power up there. And, and a person once in a while casually says to God, are you up there? Then God, like a mirror, in like manner, responds casually. So that person only has to hold a mirror up to him to know that, that how God responds to him. If you hold up the mirror, he sees himself casually considering God, and, he sees, and then he can understand how God is casually considering him. And so if a person puts his fingers in his ears, and says, I don't want to hear any more of the Bible. I've had it with the Bible. I'm tired of people 
talking to me about the Bible, then God, like a mirror, in, in a like manner, he responds with his fingers in his ears, you know, and he won't hear their prayer. It says in Jeremiah 14, 12, when they fast, I will not hear their cry. For Jeremiah 11, 14, I will not hear them in the time when they cry unto me for their trouble. So the person only has to hold up a mirror, again, to know how God responds. So he holds up a mirror, and he sees himself, you know, refusing to listen to God, the fingers in the air, and he understands how God refuses to hear him. And if a person rejects God, then God, like a mirror, in like manner, rejects that person. The person only has to hold up a mirror. And he says, holding up the mirror, he sees himself rejecting God, and he understands how God's rejecting him. But if a person reaches out to God, reaches out to God, with all of his heart, then God, like a mirror, in like manner, reaches out to that person with all his heart. And the person only has to hold up a mirror to know how God responds to him. He sees in the mirror that his hand reaching out to God, and he understands that God's hand is reaching out to him. That's what the Lord said in Jeremiah 29, 13. You'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, all your heart. We've seen how the famine here was very grievous for Abraham, and it brought him a lot of trouble for Abraham. So Abraham's wealth is described as grievous, in the, and that brought him a lot of trouble to Abraham too. I mean, one of the troubles that Abraham's wealth brought to Abraham was his trouble we have here in chapter 13, his trouble between his brethren, between him and Lot. He says, we're brethren, but it brought trouble. And the trouble that Abraham had between themselves with Lot was because of their riches. It was because of their wealth. There was not room enough for both of the herds to feed together, and they had to separate from each other. So it says in Genesis 13, 5-7, Lot also, which went with Abraham, he had flocks, herds, and tents, and the land wasn't able to bear them so that they might dwell together. For their substance was great, so they could not dwell together. And the strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle, the herdmen of Lot's cattle, Canaanite, Perizzite, they were then in the land also. Anyway, so notice in these verses how it was because Lot also had riches of flocks and herds and tents. I don't know how he got those. I was always wondering about that. Maybe, you know, when Pharaoh was so generous, maybe Lot says, well, you know, I'm his nephew. <laughs> so anyway, whatever it was. He got these things and a tragedy was caused. And the tragedy is stated twice in verse 6. And it's these words, might not dwell together. Twice it says that. And those are the same words in the Hebrew that are used in Psalm 133 that says, Behold, how good, how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together. Same words in unity. But the situation here in Genesis 13 between Abraham and Lot, it's not good. It's not pleasant because they can't dwell together because the riches, that was kaved, you know, was a grievous like a famine. It wasn't good. It wasn't pleasant because the riches had finally caused them to have to separate Lot and Abraham. It was a good thing. It was a pleasant thing when you could see Abraham mentoring his nephew you know, Lot, I mean, his father died, and so there was Abraham, and Abraham had become the prominent figure and was really guiding Lot. That was good. That was pleasant. That was a good thing. It was a bad thing when Lot, because of the riches, he lost Abraham as his mentor, and that caused him to drift. And so the next thing we see is he's drifting into where his eyes are carrying him, 
you know, first the well-watered plain, then into Sodom, and then he loses his wife. She becomes a pillar of salt. He loses all his influence over his children, his married children, and then his two unmarried daughters. Then the whole horrible history of the incest with his two daughters that produces the Ammonites and the Moabites, which were not good and pleasant for the people of Israel. Anyway, so when in verse 7, it talks about the strife, and at the end of verse 7, it says also the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelt there in the land, you know, so because of their riches, Abraham and Lot not only lost between themselves, but they lost their testimony before the Canaanites and the Perizzites that God, it's also part of the world that God loves, and so that was not good, that was not pleasant also. They watched that and they said, oh, so these are how believers react, okay. So now we understand why this word, kaved, is so important, grievous. It's used to describe Abraham's wealth in verse 2. So we could read it, verse 2, Abraham was very heavy, very grievous, weighed down in his cattle and silver and gold. All right, now come to verses 3 and 4. So at the time described, back in Genesis 12, 8, that was a time in Abraham's life where it says he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. That was a time period in Abraham's life. That was a very good time for Abraham. Oh, it was a great thing. Everything was right in his life. The priorities were right. I mean, he was in a life of worship. He's got his altar. He was in a life of prayer. He was calling on the name of the Lord. And so that was the best time for Abraham. Life was good for Abraham when he was there. I mean, the Lord, Jehovah, was his focus. Jehovah Jesus was his focus. He was experiencing what's described in Isaiah 33, 6, when God said what Israel should strive for. And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times, and strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. So that was a time for Abraham when he's worshiping God, he's calling on his name, and he's having this great stability in his life. He's got strength because God is his great treasure. Abraham is the best here. And at that time, between these places of Bethel and Ai, Abraham had what we could call the life that wins. See, very short. That's the life that wins what Abraham had there. But we know the famine and Canaan, anyway. So Abraham had to leave this place. He had to leave this altar. And unfortunately, when he left the altar, he also left the life that wins. He left the altar, left calling upon God, and he went down into Egypt. It's just a terrible time for Abraham. It's very bad, very bad for Abraham, for him to look back on. So through Abraham's sin in Egypt, Abraham loses his stability, you know, and his strength. And then, you know, Pharaoh looks at him and says, what's with you? You know, you don't believe that your God is great and mighty enough to take care of you. You've got to do this lying. And so in Egypt, and this really is a terrible time. So in Egypt, Abraham loses the life that wins. He loses it there, see? So now he's coming up out of Egypt, and he's got one goal. And you can feel it as you read these verses here. He's got one goal. He's making a beeline 
He can see this back to the place where he had the life that wins. So we see his beeline traced out in verse 3. It says, he went on. He wasn't stopping. He went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel. So he comes, you can see him feeling he was coming out of Egypt. He's going to the south. He keeps on going. He comes to Bethel. He keeps on going unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. Those are very important words. The beginning, at the beginning. The beginning in verse 3 is important because it's telling us that Abraham went back to the place where his tent had been at the beginning before Abraham fell into sin and all the trouble that he got in Egypt. And now he's returning back to his beginning. There's a lesson for us there, we see Abraham. I mean, what do we do when we leave God and we you know, fall into sin and we inherit all the trouble that sin brings along with it? What do you do? We follow Abraham because we're children of Abraham. We follow Abraham back to the beginning, back when we had the life that wins, when we were worshiping, when we were trusting, when we were obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Lord said in Revelation 2.5, he says that's what you should do. He says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, repent, do the first works. It says in Hosea 14.1, he's crying out to Israel. He said, oh Israel, we turn unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Don't blame God for it, like we saw another history in Genesis 3. So what do we see in verse 3? We see Abraham has made it. He's made it back unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. We can see he comes to the place where his tent had been. It's obviously not there now. He's come to the place where it's been. And he said, yes. He's looking around and says, oh, yes. He goes, yeah, this is the place right here. I remember that rock over there. Yeah, this is where I had my tent, right here. It's where my tent used to be. I'll put my tent right back here again, where it used to be. And notice in verse 4, as it says in Genesis 13, 4, unto the place of the altar. It doesn't say unto the altar. It says unto the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first. So we can see Abraham. He's looking around. See, the altar's no longer there. The altar's gone. We don't know why it's not there. Maybe the Canaanites, they didn't appreciate it. Well, who knows? But anyway, maybe they took it down. But he's found the place where the altar used to be, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And he goes, yes, this is the place right here. I remember perfectly this open place. This is where my altar used to be right here. It's not here anymore, but it doesn't matter. And so Abraham has come unto the place of the altar, which he made there at the first. And all the people, you know, remember now, Abraham is doing all this, and he's got a lot of people in his group there. He's got Lot in the group, Sarah, of course. There's a little, you know, a pretty little girl named Hagar they got from Egypt. There's Eliezer and all the rest of the people, and they're watching their leader, Abraham. He's silently, with great resolve, he's coming out of Egypt, nothing's going to stop him. He's making his way back to the place where he had life, you know, and he's, where he had this life that wins. And those words in verse 3, he went on. That's important. He went on in his journeys from the south, and they were watching him keep on going on. And, and he comes to the south and watch him keep on going on, and they're wondering, you know, why doesn't Abraham just find a nice place a new place for us. Why do we have to go back to the old place? Why do we have to go back to the place between Bethel and Ai? But they watch him, and he, as he alone walks over the area where his altar used to be, where his tent used to be, and then you can just sort of picture him praying to God, you know, Lord, this is Abraham. <laughs> and he says, I used to be here. I used to be here worshiping you, trusting you, obeying you. That was the life that wins. I know now. 
Because I left this place. And when I left this place, I also left off to worship you, to trust you, to obey you. Lord, I've come back. I've come back to this place because I want to come back to you. See, it's symbolic. I want to come back to worshiping you. I want to come back to trusting you, to obeying you. Lord, please forgive me and take me back. And that's the meaning of verse 4 where it says that Abraham went unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. That's the full recovery of Abraham. Abraham came back to God. The past is forgotten. Well, it's almost forgotten. It just has to be recorded for us when we're talking about it today. But anyway, as far as Abraham's concerned, it's forgotten. But Abraham is now cleansed. Abraham is now forgiven. And God is saying to Abraham, it's just behind me. All of that sin, I put it in the deepest sea. I forget it. I put it behind my back. I was separated as far as the east is from the west. It's all gone. Now, Abraham, you don't look backwards, but you look forward to walk with God. And that's where we are now. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for taking Abraham back. Thank you for taking us back. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. If you would like to hear more of this message or other messages by Tom Cantor, visit our website, friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or go to itunes.com and search for the Friendship with God podcast. All messages are cataloged by date and all available for free listening and free download. You can also call us directly for more information at 800 247 3051 800 247 3051 800 247 3051 Thanks for listening to Friendship with God with Tom Cantor